All of God's people said, amen. I tell you, there is nothing like the relationship that we have with a God above. And to be able to express that through worship, I don't know if you heard those lyrics as we were singing them, but so so many of those lyrics, they do focus around the relationship that we have with God because God has extended to us an opportunity to come and to live in relationship with Him. And that is, that is an unbelievable experience. And it's an experience of victory. It's an experience of life itself. Revelation is all about victory that we have in Jesus Christ. And as you were singing just a moment ago about being a child of God and knowing freedom, there is victory that we know now. There is victory that we will know in the future because of what Christ Jesus has done for us. And it is a challenge because we are His children, because we are living in relationship. There is a challenge in the way we relate to him and the way we are intentional in that. I want to I direct your attention this morning to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, as we see Jesus come to the churches, come to the believers, just like us. These are flesh and blood churches that were in Asia Minor, seven of them that he will address. And they're churches that have they have strengths, they have weaknesses, they have victories, they have moments where they are in Well, they are in midst of defeat. And yet, Jesus will speak to them. He'll bring a word to them. In some sense, he'll bring an evaluation. Now, for our junior high and high school students, they're nearing the end of their nine weeks. Some of them finished up last week. This is kind of like a holiday for them, and they're out. So before long, they're going to start getting their grades. And I know we're marching quickly toward the end of a quarter. It's kind of hard to even think about it. Now, I know it's still a few more weeks, but like before you know it, boom, you'll be at the end of another quarter, and then all of a sudden, you'll get your grades. And I know that when you get your evaluation sometimes, your report card, your grades, whatever, it can be a time of either great celebration or it might be a moment of weeping and gnashing of teeth as well, right? So it's kind of like that. It can go back and forth. Well, you know, when Jesus looks at us and he brings an an assessment, an evaluation, if you want to say he gives us a report card, there will be areas where we will do well, and there will be areas where, in particular, he wants to challenge us. And we see that as he speaks to these churches. These are like report cards that he gives to the churches. And he begins with the church at Ephesus. Notice in chapter 2, verse 1, this is Jesus speaking. He says, to the angel of the church at Ephesus write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So Jesus said, this is to the angel at the church in Ephesus. Now, most of the time when we hear that word angel, obviously it means a heavenly being. And perhaps Jesus was talking to John to talk to a, a heavenly being. But I'm becoming more convinced as I've studied this passage that the word angel, of course, in the New Testament can also mean messenger. So it's the word angelos can mean messenger. So I kind of think that maybe what Jesus is saying through John is that I have a message to the messenger of the church, to the pastor of the church. And as you speak to that pastor and that leader, obviously, the message then will go to the church itself. So it's kind of like to the angel, to the messenger, whether it's a heavenly being or a pastor, he says, this is a message that I have. It is to the church at Ephesus. The church itself has been around for 40 years. Think of that. 
40 years. Now, for us at Temple, we've been around for 90-plus years here in Ruston. There are a lot of other churches that have been around a long time. But for the church at Ephesus, they've been in existence about 40 years. Thanks, thanks to Priscilla and Aquila, thanks to a guy named Apollos, thanks to Paul who came through on the second missionary journey, the church was born. And it was in, the, it was in an urban city. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I think about the cities in the New Testament, I think about them being kind of rural. Well, these were urban cities, Ephesus in particular. You had like 250 to 500,000 people living in Ephesus, kind of the size of Ruston, something like that, okay? So you got all this number of people that are living in Ephesus. A church has been established, and Jesus said, now after you've been in existence 40 years, I've got some things I need to say to you in, well... As I am getting ready to return, I want you to know the assessment that I'm making of you. And he identifies himself as the one who holds the seven stars, which would be the seven angels, the seven pastors or messengers. Jesus holds these messengers in his hand, and he says, it says that he walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, the lampstands being the churches themselves. So here's Jesus. He identifies himself. He says, I'm walking in your midst. So this kind of blows my mind. But think this morning about how Jesus Christ is like with us now. Even the term Emmanuel, God with us. So like he's here. I, I don't know if that blows your mind or not, but I'm just like the God of the universe just settled in with us for worship this morning. He just decided he is walking in the midst of us and he knows who we are. Like if he's holding our church leadership in his hand and he's walking in the midst and he knows everything about us, that's the reason he says in verse 2, I know. And the terminology there means I know for a fact. I can see everything. That's rather frightening for me to just stop and think about. That Jesus knows everything about us. So he knows not only the good things that other people see about us, but he also knows the weaknesses and the difficulties of our lives. You know, there are some things I just don't necessarily want to put out there for you to know. I'll just be honest with you. I, I mean, I want to be transparent with you, but there are probably some things you, prob you ought not to know necessarily about me. Some of my struggles, some of my weaknesses. Some of them I can put out. Some of them are probably like, yeah, you, you don't want to know because you probably find another pastor. If you really realized the issues that all of us face. Some of you are like that too. You probably have things in your life you don't necessarily want to put out there for everybody to know. But Jesus knows. He knows everything about you. He sees you when you're here in this place. He sees you when you walk away. He sees you in your room. He sees you wherever you are. And he looks at the church at Ephesus. And remember, a church is made up of individuals. So he says, I know. I know for a fact. Well, what does he know? He knows that there's some good things, and he knows there's a challenge as well. So look at the good things. Verse 2, he says, I know your works, your labor, your patience. He says, I know that you are working for me. I know that you are laboring for me. I know that you are diligently serving. I know you're doing that. And I'm so grateful for you, the way you are serving. I mean, if you were to look at this church, if you were to say, let's, let's go back to the first century, you get on the internet, you find their website, 
there would be a ministries little section. You hit their ministry section. You go down and look at it. You would find all kinds of things they were involved in. They would have all types of family ministries and generational ministries. They would have all kinds of outreach ministries into the community. They would, they would probably even have a disaster relief team. Maybe even a chainsaw. Aren't you proud that they're chainsaw teams? You look around, disaster relief teams. They might have had those that they worked in the community. If they were looking at that ministries tab, George, they might have had a Love Lincoln. A Love Lincoln page. Well, that's our page. Love Lincoln, because that's our outreach to the Lincoln Parish and beyond, really, our Love Lincoln efforts. They probably would have had more of Adore Anatolia, because Anatolia was the name. Adore Anatolia. That's what they would have been doing. They were serving. They were diligently. They were taking care of the poor. They were taking care of their widows. They were out teaching the Scripture. They were serving. And Jesus said, I am proud of you. I know what you're doing. You're diligently serving. And get this. That service was tough. It was not easy. Do you know how easy it would have been? Or maybe I should say, do you realize how difficult it really was to be able to minister into a place like Ephesus? Ephesus was not necessarily friendly to Christians. And when you look at the spiritual landscape, the moral landscape, you would find that Ephesus was filled with immorality. They were even creative in the way they could sin. They were very excessive. About 20 years after this revelation was written, there in Ephesus they built a big library, which was cool. It was the third largest library in the world. And when I was over there some months ago, they were talking about this library and how it was a place of knowledge, but also it became a place of immorality. Because what the people did is that they built a tunnel underneath the road from the library to a brothel. That's right. That way you go down, you study, then you go over to the brothel if you would like, and whatever else. That was the immorality that was going on in Ephesus. Do you think it's easy to serve in that type of context? Do you think it's easy to try to minister in that type of setting? It says in verse 3, and you have persevered. The word means that you have held up under the difficult circumstances. And you have had patience. You have endured, he says. You've done that. So that was a good thing they were doing. They were diligently serving in a place that was so difficult. Again, Heraclitus was a philosopher of the day. And they call him the weeping philosopher because he said, if you lived in Ephesus, you could not help but weep over the immorality that would be seen. And here they are serving still. And I know some of us look around us and we're like, man, it's, it's kind of bad. I mean, this is like you see things around, immorality and all that kind of stuff. You and I have no excuse to give up. Just as those early churches served, you and I must serve even when the world gets a little darker around us. We must be diligently serving. So here's, 
Here's Jesus. He's the man you're diligently serving. You as a church, I'm proud of you. He also says this. He says you are doctrinally sound. You are doctrinally sound. You know the truth, and you're following the truth. Look in verse 2. It says that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And then in verse 6 it says, But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he says, you know what you believe. And when somebody comes in and they try to tell you that you're wrong, and they try to espouse other doctrine to you or other teaching, you hold fast. And I'm proud of you. I'm grateful for you in the way you are serving. Well, you and I shouldn't be surprised because the Bible says that during the third missionary journey, Paul stays like two to three years in Ephesus. You don't think Paul gave them some good theology? I mean, you don't think he talked to them about what was right, those things that they should believe? I mean, yes, he did. He even said to them, I have delivered to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, he didn't just preach his hobby horses every week. Those sugar sticks, you know, the things that we want to hear. He just covered all of the truth of Scripture. And he says, I gave that to you because they needed that foundation. Later on, Timothy and John, they would add to that. And they would be reinforced in the truth. So they knew what they believed. And again, it was difficult. It was very difficult. Even in Ephesus, to know what you believed. Or at least to follow the truth of Christ. Because there are so many other truths that were out there. If you do a little history lesson on Ephesus, you would find out that there was a huge temple. It was a temple to Artemis, or the Romans would call her Diana. Huge temple. It was one of the seven wonders of the world, as a matter of fact. And there people would flock to worship, to commit immorality. I mean, here they worshipped Diana in this area. They worshipped Artemis, this fertility goddess. They worshipped her. And yet, in the midst of all that, the disciples, Paul in particular, he preached the truth. And what happened? Jesus Christ changed lives. You believe he can do that? Jesus Christ changed lives. You know what the people did? The people took their books of witchcraft. According to the book of Acts, they took their books of witchcraft, which was worth about 50,000 silver pieces, and they burned them all because truth had changed them. You know what they did? They stopped buying idols. And because of that, there was a guy named Demetrius who was like a silversmith who like made the idols. When, you, when people start, stop buying idols, you know what that does to the idol maker? It puts him out of business. He's not making money. And the Bible says Demetrius got so mad that he started getting all the other people together. And he said, we're not going to make any money because truth is impacting people. They're changing their, their minds and they're changing their lifestyles. Because, see, that's what happens. Your belief should play into your behavior. Now, I know some people today say, I just need some practical messages. And all messages should be practical in some way. I agree with you. But you and I also need to have some doctrinal messages. 
We need to know those things we believe because it impacts the way we live. If I believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation, and I do believe that, then that means I'm going to talk to other people about Jesus Christ because that's the only way they're going to come to salvation. If I decide one is just as good as the other, then you know what? I'm probably not going to worry about it. Belief will move behavior. Jesus said, I'm so proud of you that you've not given in to the false teachers. And Paul, when he left, if you look at Acts 20, when Paul left the church after pastoring it, he said, you get ready because there are going to be some wolves that come in and they're going to try to destroy your faith. They're going to teach you all kinds of things. And here, obviously they have. They've come in, and yet they have remained focused upon the truth. It's so hard to live in a world that has so many, so many ungodly positions and not be in some way affected by that world. It really is. I mean, I have to watch it every day that I see some of this slipping in into my own life, and I know if it slips into my life, it can slip into the church's life. But we must know what we believe, we must be founded in the truth, and we must reject those things that are wrong. Well, now, Brother Reggie, that doesn't sound very open-minded at all. Well, I will tell you that I do believe we ought to be sensitive and open-minded. But I had a professor at Blue Mountain College that said, you shouldn't be so open-minded that your brains fall out. In other words, you ought to be a thinker. You ought to consider, but you ought to know the truth. And instead of studying all the different things that are wrong, if you study the truth and know the truth, then you can determine that which is wrong. So you study the truth and you look at it. Because you and I need to be discerning of what's coming into our lives. Again, some of you say, well, you're not supposed to judge. I believe that Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 is quoted probably more today than John 3.16 is. What do you mean by that? I mean, there are today more people that know that Matthew 7, 1 than they do the love of Jesus as it's presented in John. In other words, you're not supposed to judge. Well, Matthew 7, 1 does say, judge not that you be not judged. The word there is condemn. And you and I should not be condemning anybody because you and I are not the judge of this universe. He is the only judge that has that authority. And then it goes on, verses 2 through 5, that says that you and I should deal with our own hypocrisy. We should deal with the beam that is in our eye, not just the speck that's in somebody else's. So he says, you deal with your own hypocrisy. But it does not mean that you leave discernment to the side. Because Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 says, judge not, be not judged. Verses 2 through 5 say, deal with your hypocrisy. And then verse 6 that most people don't even know, verse 6 says, Do not cast that which is holy before the dogs and your pearls before the swine. Jesus was simply saying, use discernment. Look with discernment. Know what the truth is and live the truth. When those things that are coming that are false, that are ungodly, you reject those things. And later on in Matthew 7, same chapter, he says, beware of false prophets or false teachers. And he says this, you will know them by their fruits. In other words, you and I are called to be discerning and look at their fruits. That's what Jesus said. 
So here, you get an A. You get an A for service. You get an A for belief. You've done well. That's great. That's what Jesus said. But look at verse 4. Nevertheless. That word stings. That word bites. It's kind of like you're looking down your report card and you see A, A, and then boom, you get to physics. Not quite so much an A. It's almost like the professor himself or herself wrote in, nevertheless. You got two A's, but nevertheless, you still took physics. Calculus, whatever you want to put in there. So you still did it. Jesus said, A-A, oh, nevertheless, I have this against you. Do you hear how strong that is, that Jesus has something against you? These are his people, by the way. These are, these are like believers. And he says, I have something against you, that you have left your first love. He says, you are definitely separated. You've made a decision in some way. You have decisively abandoned. That's what the word means. Decisively deserted your first love. Who's the first love? Jesus. And he says, you in some way, you have moved away from me. You're doing some good things. Your programs, they look great. Your doctrine, what you put out there for people that you tell them that you believe, that's, that's great. But you're missing this love relationship with me. Some have called this mechanical orthodoxy. We see it in our churches. I hate to admit, but I probably grew up in some churches like this. They were doing some great things. They had wonderful programs. They were ministering to people. And when it came to doctrine, wow, sit in a Sunday school class, go to whatever, hear the preacher preach. They had it all together. It was a very tight theological system that they could give to you that was based upon the Scripture. It was great. But they were missing the relationship. Everything was just mechanical. It was just like motions. In the church at Ephesus, they were going through the motions. But they were not experiencing the love relationship that they should with Jesus Christ. Forty years. Oh, wow, they had had the pastors too. You talk about the leadership. I mean, they had had great leaders. I told you, Paul. But think about this. Timothy, John. You know, I noticed this about North Louisiana. I did not know this at South Louisiana when I was down there pastoring, but I noticed this North Louisiana. Then in a lot of our what in the world? Zach? Zach. I wasn't going to talk too negatively of North Louisiana. Dude, I don't know what that was. I noticed this in North Louisiana when I came up in church life. And that is, if you're in a Baptist church in particular, and I would say probably some Methodist and Presbyterian churches as well, probably more established churches, you could find a hall of pastors. 
They've got pictures of the pastors, the former pastors, on a wall somewhere around the church. We didn't really have that down in South Louisiana. But North Louisiana, that's the thing. I've been in several of them. You walk down, you're like, boom, I'm in the hall of pastors. And they all seem like they're looking at you all the time when you walk by. And I go by and I look at them. And they, they look, there's some, there's some great, great guys that served here. And I don't mean to take away from it at all. But sometimes I go through and I'm thinking, yeah, that one looks just like Jeremy Asher. Yeah, that one, that's a Jody Adams. You know, I go, see, that's one of those things I wish I hadn't told you. The One of those things you wish you didn't know about me now. But I go through there and look, and you got, got these great pastors. You know, if you were to walk through the hall of pastors at Ephesus, you would have found a picture of Paul, the apostle. You would have found a picture of the young, energetic, revivalistic Timothy. That's right. Timothy was the pastor at Ephesus. And then you would have found John. John, who writes this. The beloved disciple. His whole nickname is about love. So he taught all those years, and somehow they still, they still are not loving like they should. What happened? I think it is as most relationships can happen. And that is that over a period of time, even unintentionally, if we're not careful, we can grow apart in our relationships. I take the marriage relationship, for example. There have been many days, unfortunately, in my 20 or 20 plus years of ministry, that somebody has come to me, maybe in my office, it was a husband or it was a wife, and the husband would say something like, I just don't love her like I did. We're just not connected like we once were. Or maybe it was the wife. She says, I just don't know him anymore. He doesn't know me. And when I hear that, I tell you, it just breaks me. But what I realize is they didn't get there overnight. There was no husband that just got up in the morning and said, you know what, today would be a great day to drift away from my wife. Mm -mm. There is no wife that I know that would get up in the morning and say, you know what, I'm going to do everything I can today to make sure that I am distancing myself from my husband in this marriage. It doesn't just happen like that. It happens over time and unintentionally. Sometimes it's busyness. I like to be busy. When I was in quarantine, I almost went crazy. I just started calling some of you. I figured you didn't care anyway and just come on over. You would be the crowd that wouldn't care as much. I'd be like, I got to have some company. Busyness, though, can kill a relationship. I say to those that are married... I say that you have to be intentional in your relationship because what happens is you get your job, you're busy. Kids come along, you're busy. Years will pass and sometimes you will look up and you'll notice that your spouse 
is clear across the room and you didn't even know him or know her, there's so much distance that's been created because you just didn't give the intentionality to the relationship. And may I say that's the way it happens in our lives with Christ as well. We're in relationship with him, but there's so many other things. There's so much about work and school, and there's so much about relationships here on this earth. And before you know it, you look up and you're like, whoa, who moved here? I'm here, Jesus is over there. Well, let me answer this. He didn't move. You and I are the ones who move in our relationship. So all of a sudden, they've left their first love. So what were they to do? Verse 5 says, remember, review where you were and what you've done. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember from where you have fallen. Remember where you once were. Now, see, I love being at Temple at Ruston in particular because of it being a college town. Um, I noticed this in, in... the years of ministry, I need older people in my life to help me with wisdom. So I'm grateful to have older people here because I need wisdom. But I also need younger people because they seem to bring more energy and passion as well. So I feed off of that. I love to sense that, the energy and the passion among younger people. So for some of you, you may be like, hey, I'm right in the, I'm right in the midst of like this relationship, maybe you've just accepted Christ as your Savior, that's great, and you feel that passion. Let me just say to you, just do what it takes to encourage that passion. For those of us who've been saved for some time, though, do you not know that there are moments where we need some revival and renewal in our relationship? We need God to breathe a fresh breath. Remember, Some of you have been saved for a while. Do you remember what it was like when you got saved? Man, I remember remember hearing my pastor preach and the conviction of the Holy Spirit coming upon my life. And I'm going to tell you, it just, the Spirit so overwhelmed me. I, I don't even know how I could resist what God was doing in my life. I had to come to Him. I had to give my life to Him. And when I did, there was something about it that I wanted to like be a part of His kingdom. I wanted to serve Him. Man, I was on fire for the Lord. But there's so many distractions and obstacles that have come in our lives. And even in my life in these 30 years or so that I've been a Christian, where God had to stir me once again and renew me. I say that you have to be intentional. You have to remember where you were. And some of you, you were a lot stronger in your relationship with Christ some months ago, some years ago. It's almost like you've allowed that passion to dry, to dry up. And while God is very grateful for your service and for your doctrine, what he really wants is you in a relationship with him. Remember, repent. The word repent means a change of heart, mind, soul, the whole of your being. In other words, that you have renewed yourself to the Lord. You are being intentional. I hate to keep using that word, but that's so important. Intentional. So, 
When I do premarital counseling, a lot of times I will remind the young couple that you have to be intentional with one another. You have to take time for one another because if you don't, people will take your time for you. And if you don't work on your marriage, I can guarantee you nobody else is going to work on your marriage. So you have to be intentional. You have to say, this is what I'm going to do. And I'll also tell them, you got to continue to like keep the fires burning, the passion. you got to continue to date, for example. And sometimes I'll have them to do like a little budget. I remember one year, there was a young couple that came back in. They had done their budget, and they had something budgeted there for dating because I encouraged that. I said, you need to keep doing it because what happens is you like date for all this time, and then you get married, and then you say, I ain't got money to date. And then you say, we're not dating, and then all the other things come, and again, you're not dating, and the kids come along, and hey, what is a date when a kid is around, and all the other things going on. So I said, you got to be intentional. So, I, so, I, so I'd say, budget for a date. This young couple came in, and they said, uh, we have $45.21, something like that, $45.21. I said, that's pretty exact. They said, that's what we can eat at Outback Farm. And both of us can get exactly what we want, and we'll do that once a month. That's pretty cool. All right. At least you're being intentional. At least you're thinking about it. Hey, you need to be intentional. There has to be a repenting. Do you know the, the verb tense, which I know this excites you, and you said this will lead me to revival. But the verb tense of remembering is present. And that means you go on remembering. So it means you got to keep going on and thinking about it, remembering over and over and over. But the word for repent, the tense of it is one of decisive action. It means you must go on remembering, but you must decisively make a decision to change, to renew yourself, to renew yourself. So you go on remembering, but you have to repent. And then what do you do? You redo. You do the first works, he says. That's what he says. Just come back. Or else what? In verse 5, he says, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying, if you don't deal with your relationship with me, what I'm going to do is remove your effectiveness as a church, as a, as a people. Because you can have all that stuff right. You can have all your buildings and all your programs. And you can have all your good doctrine and theology. But if you're not loving me like you should, then I'm just going to remove your effectiveness. You're not going to be able to shine like you should shine. You're not going to be the people you should be. Because what we need most in our, in our lives is a relationship with Jesus Christ. He says, but for those who overcome... Look at that in verse 7. He who has an ear literally means something like, hey, the one who has even one ear, let him go on hearing what the Spirit goes on saying to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. He said, as you overcome, you're going to experience the fruit of, the fruit of the Garden of Eden. Notice this is a return to the garden. It's paradise. What does overcoming mean? How do you overcome? John already answered that. First John chapter 5. You'll find it where he speaks about 
Those who overcome, overcome through faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. So in other words, it just goes back again to the relationship. How you overcome? Through the relationship you have with Jesus Christ. Through your trust, your faith in him. And he says, I just need to stir you. I want you to come. I want you to understand the relationship. Remember. Repent. Read, renew. This week I was thinking about wind, obviously. Because lately it seems like we've had a lot of wind physically. And even some wind, I would say, metaphorically. So, I don't know about if you were up, but Saturday morning about 2 a.m.? Woo! Maybe because of what we had been through before. I had to buy some new jeans this week because I think I wore mine out because I was on the floor praying the whole time. The knees were worn out of them. I was. And then, of course, there are the metaphorical winds that are blowing around us of pandemic issues, unrest, so much. But I read this week something about the difference between a candle and a fire as it experiences that wind. Wind can blow a candle out very quickly, can it not? Just a little wind, but especially the wind we've had lately. It can blow the candle out. But if you have a fire and wind comes and affects that fire, a lot of times it will actually spread the fire. It can move the fire because it's burning. And you know, I've been thinking, what if instead of us burning like a little simple candle and we burned more passionately like a fire. And while all the wind is going on and blowing around us and all this stuff's happening and it's happening, it's happening, on the, it's happening in our community, it's happening in the nation, it's happening in the globe, I mean, all the pandemic, all that kind of stuff. Instead of getting blown outside by it, may it ignite more of a passion May it ignite more of a fire within us. May we seek him in relationship because that is, again, what truly matters is our relationship with him. It's great that you're serving. It's great that you have good theology. But my friends, this morning, can you fall in love with Jesus all over again? Would you come back to the place where you loved him so and recommit your life and renew what he wants to accomplish within you. If so, then you will burn brightly. And the passion that burns within you will spill over into others that you come in contact with. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning. I'm grateful for this message and I'm grateful that, Lord, you impact me, but you impact each one of us. Because, Lord, we know as a church, we're made up again of individuals. So what you want here today is a renewed relationship with individuals. Lord, we know that you didn't choose any of us because of our great skill, our great appearances. Lord, you first loved us when we were sinners, when we were broken. And you pursued us and you brought us to yourself. God, help us to remember that. Help us to remember this morning 
what you want to accomplish. And this morning in this place, in each and every individual's life, I pray that you would restore them to the passion and the love that they once had for you. Father, I pray that as individuals and as a church, we would fall in love with you again all over. We pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen.